Hello, friends. Welcome to Conversations with Consequences from the Catholic Association. I'm your host, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm in studio with my colleague, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer. Hi, Andrea. Hello, Gracie. Good to see you. Nice to see you, too. And also our other colleague, Ashley McGuire. Hi, Ashley. Hey. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) She's our millennia. She says, hey. We have a great show today. We're going to be talking to Monse Alvarado from the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. And if our listeners don't know what that is, I'll tell you that for 20 years, the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty has become uh, has been the premier religious liberty law firm and the only nonprofit public interest legal and educational institute that protects the free expression of all religious traditions. You may remember a couple of very important cases that they were involved in defending, that they defended before the Supreme Court. You'll know, of course, Little Sisters of the Poor in 2016, a case that they won, you know, to great excitement um, in the United States for religious liberty, for people who are interested in religious liberty, and also Burwell versus Hobby Lobby in 2014. So today we're going to talk about religious liberty in general, why it's important, what it means in the American experiment, the American experience, why we have to protect it, and then, of course, very importantly, what the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty has been so successful at doing for these past 20 years. You know, Gracie, I'm super excited to have Monse on. I've seen and known a lot of great lawyers, and Beckett has this incredible concentration of some of the smartest lawyers uh, in D.C., and they extend and have alliances and great connections with great lawyers in the local places where they're bringing their cases. But the other thing is they're, like, awesome. They're really funny. They're witty. They're friendly. They're, you know, just a joy to be around. And Monse is kind of the perfect example of Beckett. I have to clarify. Let me clarify for our listeners that Monse is not a lawyer. She plays one on TV. (laughs) She's She's the vice president and executive director since February of 2017, and she's, she's all fabulousness, and she, she's all, all over television and radio advocating for Beckett's wonderful clients. So this is Ashley, and it's a, especially exciting for me to have Monse on because I also worked at the Beckett Fund. It was my first job out of college, um, and that is That's where right, Monse— I had forgotten that. <laughs> yeah, so we met there when we were babies out of college, mm-hmm. and so it's very exciting to have her here. And— I thought that a good starting place would be, Monse, if you can just tell us sort of what is the Beckett Fund's philosophy of religious liberty? Help us understand. I think it's the whole concept of religious liberty is so misunderstood. I mean, we live in a time where now people put it in scare quotes as if it's a, as if it's a fake thing. And Beckett is so unique in that you defend people of all faiths. So tell us about, about Beckett's philosophy and, and how you approach the law. Sure. Well, first, thank you so much for having me. It's such a treat to be among such wonderful, intelligent women advocating for real conversations. Oh, and, and we're witty conversationalists. As Absolutely. Well. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is, and it is a joy to be here with Ashley. I've been at the Beckett Fund for 10 years, and um, she was one of the first people that I met there. And I think one of the most important aspects of Beckett is exactly what you just said, Ashley, um, how we look at religious liberty and not just how we think about it, but how we advocate for it. So we look at religious liberty not from a confessional perspective, not because we have deep religious beliefs, people in the office definitely do, but because we see it as a human right. And 
that aspect of human dignity that allows us to search for God, that's what we're protecting. We're protecting this idea that we all have our eyes on the far horizon, that we all see that there is something bigger than ourselves, and we want to discover that and search for that. And that search has to be protected from government intrusion. It has to be protected from anyone who's going to try to stop you from changing your mind about God and who he is, because it's so much more about who we are and not who he is. You know, Monse, I'm a, I'm a, per- this is Gracie. I'm a person, I'm, my parents uh, were exiled from Cuba and I'm, I'm, and I'm from a big Cuban exile community. And the idea that, that a person, that, that every human being has a right of an important right to, to make up their own minds about things, about important things, about their purpose in life, why they are here. This, we call, we can call it religion, but it's really just the liberty of the human soul to seek answers and find answers. Absolutely. And, and here in the United States, it's my experience that people take that for granted and we're losing, we've lost the language of, of how to express that and, and we're losing, we're losing our, our popularity, the popularity of that, of that thinking. We're losing the, 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 the it's all lost. It's being right, lost. It is. It's this idea that human flourishing happens without the soul and mm, that really, right. it's not true. Um, but we're also kind of spoiled because our founders did such a fantastic job of setting up our legal system and setting up our constitution and protecting that inner voice, that um, forum internum that allows us to really become who we're supposed to be. And the mistake people make, going back to Ashley's point, is to use religious liberty as a political tool, Mm -hmm. because it's not. Um, It's something that both sides of the aisle come together um, to acknowledge. If you think about what happens on the Senate floor every morning when it opens, you have a chaplain who opens up that discussion with a prayer. What's interesting, Monse, when we were talking about religious liberty, it's very easy for Americans to all come together and defend religious liberty abroad. Right, we're all shocked and horrified with the the suffering of Christians in the Middle East and any minority religions being kind of attacked or or silenced outside of our country. But we're having a hard time seeing how that's playing out here. And I like the fact that you you brought us back to the founders. Um, and I've heard it said several times before, and I think it's very important to remember: religious freedom is one of our first freedoms as Americans. So it's not just a freedom that's because of people of faith. It's a freedom that we we hold as Americans as well. Yeah, it's that cornerstone, right? It's the canary in the coal mine. And we use this as an indicator in international advocacy when we say, well, if religious liberty is going wrong in a country, then we know that there are other things that are Hmm. not happening well. Um, Poverty, other education. And offenses against women tend to happen. (laughs) Yes. But if you look at that in the United States, it's also the canary in the coal mine here. It's that cornerstone right that allows all the other uh, mm-hmm. rights to flourish. It allows all of the other rights to exist, speech, assembly, etc. Well, all and, of those enumerated rights. And also rights. the founders understood that religion was the means by which the, the populace becomes virtuous and attains certain virtues that then they're able to bring to the democratic process and deliver a good country at the polls, right? Because we're all choosing at the polls. We're choosing between rights and wrongs. And, and shaping our country, but without the virtues that, inst- that religion instills, then what are we bringing to the polls? And we are so obsessed with what exactly that religion has to be. So we've lost kind of the competition of ideas and letting ideas that you don't necessarily agree with flourish, mm-hmm. um, or not just tolerating them, but actually listening to them. Uh, I heard Jackie Rivers, who is a phenomenal doctor at um, Harvard, and she runs the Seymour Institute, she said, 
as Christians, we've forgotten how to love because we're merely tolerating each other. Wow. That's one of the principles that I loved about, that I, I loved and still love about about the Beckett Fund is that uh, they understood that tolerance, we don't tolerate religion, and that religion, and this is something that goes back to the founders, um, they understood that it's not something that's meant to be kept inside or contained. And and to your point about the competition of ideas, um, that in fact when we try to stuff religion away out of society into you know churches and homes, what ends up happening is um, minority faiths end up getting drowned out because um, there's always going to be a louder or more aggressive um, voice that drowns out minority voices. And so that the, it's most healthy when you have faiths kind of all out there in the public square. Um, Monte, a lot of our listeners are, are Catholics, and I think they'd be interested to hear a little bit about what the church has taught about religious liberty and, and its contribution um, to our, our sort of modern understanding of religious liberty and and to the Beckett Fund's founder's vision for the Beckett Fund. Sure, absolutely. And that's actually a perfect place to start. I mean, Seamus Hassan, when he started the Beckett Fund 25 years ago, started it because he wanted to protect religious liberty as a human right. And he based it on John Paul II's encyclical, Dignitatis Humanae, where he described the search for um, the search for God as being something that should be protected. And he doubled down on the idea of render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but also make sure that <laughs> you render unto God what is God's and that you protect that area of your godly life. Um, and that tying of religious liberty as a human right as, and as essential to human dignity is the foundation for how we understand these rights and how we advocate for them. So, so religious liberty is not built into every culture, right? It's not. It, it's a concept that comes comes to us from from on high. Absolutely, from from, from our religious. Absolutely, religious and, liberty comes he, from like the liberty of conscience comes from ideas of, of of human dignity, which aren't in the natural world. They're in the religious order. And understanding that our rights don't come from the government, so the government mm-hmm. can't take them away. They come from a higher power. Whatever you decide that how right. higher power may be, wherever you think that you come from or how your religion describes religious liberty, right? So we have this encyclical, we have the catechism. The LDS Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, has their 11th article mm-hmm. that also speaks to religious liberty as a human right. Um, you can find these concepts manifested in all kinds of religions that understand that the vision of who God believes we are is one that is inscribed with dignity. Let me remind our listeners that this is Conversations with Consequences, and we're talking to Monse Alvarado, and she's the vice president of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. You know, I'd like to point out to our listeners that may not know this about the Beckett Fund is that they they um, defend people of all faiths, every faith. So they have these great parties once a year in, in New York that I've been privileged to go to a couple, a few times. And there will be a man in a full regalia of uh, eagle feathers. Of, um, he's in, uh, an Indian, right? An American Indian. And the Apache tribe, yeah. Apache tribe, mm-hmm. thank you. You'll explain who that is. Um, and there's, there's Sikhs and uh, Jews. One, I was there one, one year when you gave the, the Be- this award that you give once a year to Rabbi Sachs, who's yes, the chief the rabbi of London. Amazing. I heard his speech. Uh, he's a, I'm a great fan of his. It's wonderful to see a place where all these different religions, you know, gather uh, together and, and are defended by your wonderful law firm. 
He, uh, I, I love Rabbi Sachs. I yeah. have to say, everyone <laughs> should get one of his books. They're beautiful and easy to read. But he said something at that dinner. He said, the tree of liberty has religious roots. Exactly. Don't make the mistake of thinking that you can sever those roots and have the tree of liberty survive. <gasps> That's a beautiful way to do put it. Do you think that, Monse, do you think that we're at a, a point of crisis where kind of the presence of secularization in American culture might be trying to sever the roots of religion in our in our I mean it's getting worse and worse Seamus founded Beckett 25 years ago with the idea of wow we really have to start being countercultural and helping people understand where their rights come from um, we're 25 years into the fight and it's just as bad maybe worse probably I think it, worse. I think it must be worse mm-hmm. well and I, one, one thing that's striking to me is how even a decade ago it was a unifying issue it was a bi- religious <laughs> liberty was a bipartisan mm-hmm. issue it was not um, controversial it was not something that's divisive and now we're so deeply divided as a nation about it what what do you think happened in the last 10 years I think it's the role of the government getting greedy and wanting to do more and more and kind of co-opt religion for its own um, uses it, religion has been co-opted by the government which is why we actually have the separation of church and state people think it's to protect to the protect government the from government, religion yeah, to protect the, us, the people from yeah, religion yeah. absolutely it's the other way around you're you're supposed to be protected from the government co-opting your religion and um, that's exactly what's happening with religion choosing I mean, sorry, the government choosing what it is about religion that's right and wrong and what it is that is convenient for them to use. So, you know, I think a lot about that with healthcare. I'm a uh-huh. doctor, I'm a practicing physician. And as as the government becomes more and more involved in healthcare, like with Obamacare and things like that, we've I see a terrible time coming. It's already here where the government decides, you know, what are the things that medically are meant to be done, what aren't meant to be done. And it's it's crazy. It's when you get. It's when you let the government um, in too far into things that 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 belong to the person. Subsidiarity, right? The principle that things should belong to the at the level at which they apply and mm-hmm. not higher up. I may have a slightly contrarian perspective on you things. Do. I do. Um, you know, having had a extensive experience in, in civil rights as a lawyer, I've seen um, that we are kind of in a. a terrible position where certain civil rights are being pitted against individual religious liberties. And and I think that in, in our next uh, segment, we'll talk a little bit about some of the cases that Beckett is taking the lead on or has joined on, where there's this false dichotomy. It's either mm-hmm. one or the other, which I think is not true. And I'm hoping that the, the Court of Appeals judges and the justices on the Supreme Court will be able to see that there is a way to recognize all liberties without having to kind of put religious liberties as in, in a corner on its own. Because they're splitting who the person truly is, right? They're not acknowledging the whole person. And when you don't acknowledge the whole person, you can make those divisions. You can look at me and see a Mexican-American brown person who maybe has faith and who deserves civil rights that are associated with my race, but maybe not necessarily religious liberty rights. If you don't look at the whole person as a being and value their life completely, um, you immediately create that split where Mm -hmm. you parse out, well, you deserve these rights, but you don't deserve those. And on the context of um, the medical world, assisted suicide is something where it's the government that's deciding the value of your life. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the government is making that decision right. for you or allowing a physician or someone else to make a decision for you, pressured by political interests. So again, we're going back to creating political tools out of human rights. Well, and divisiveness, where we should be having greater unity and, and greater support for one another. Absolutely. I, I spend a lot, I spend too much time on Twitter. <laughs> as, my, as my husband likes to tell me and my children now mom get off that twitter and and i what i what i i, I tweet a lot about medical issues and medical religious uh, liberty right not, and conscience rights of doctors because it's not all obviously it's not necessarily a religious idea that cer- certain things aren't good for your patients and you should be allowed to recommend things that are better for them or and sometimes you should just be allowed to do what the patient wants that's not what the government or the the whatever the cultural moment is, right? Like I'm thinking about transgender things and, and therapies. But anyway, um, on Twitter, the, the, the pushback is so fierce against any idea that, that religion should inform your professional judgment as a doctor. And, and sometimes we'll get into like discussions and debates with people from across the pond where peop, you know European countries where the government really does run healthcare, right? Like we complain about the government running healthcare now here in the United States, but they really run it over there. And that that space for individual autonomy and conscience rights doesn't exist hmm. in people's minds. They say, no, this is, the, you don't get to decide anything as a patient or a doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's what the government decides you're is the appro- worth is the ap- receiving and, and what it, and what the government decides is appropriate for you as a human being without seeing the whole human as you said Monse and what they're willing to pay for Monse exactly. tell us um, a little bit about your your path to this how did you get interested in religious liberty and and um, and what is it that that kept you in the fight for so many years um, I came to religious liberty obviously through my faith um, in my background my understanding of religious liberty in Mexico, um, it's hard to see religious mm-hmm. groups not be allowed to uh, own property or even media not be able, it, EWTN and Guadalupe Radio conversa- conversations with consequences isn't something that you would be able to do over there freely. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I discovered the American experiment, I fell in love with it. I'm definitely one of those people. I'm very proud to be Mexican, but man, I love America, and I celebrate my anniversary. Ditto, Ditto from Cuba. Yeah, I celebrate my anniversary <laughs> as an American citizen um, every year, and August 18th. It matters to me. Beautiful. Um, and I think that people should. That that's what's kept me in the fight is knowing what I have and looking around the world and seeing what they don't have and being grateful for it. You know, we we talk a lot about what immigrants bring bring to the country. But this is a this is a very important thing that immigrants bring fresh eyes that can really appreciate the the glories of the American experiment perspective. Oh, yeah. Well, and it's interesting. I lived for over 10 years out of the country in South America. And it's amazing. First, the rock star status that an American has, especially in in the Americas, because there's such um, admiration for the openness and the voice that each one of us has. And also the protected, uh, the laws and the protections in the history that we have. Well, that music means we're going to break and you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. We'll be back in a couple minutes to talk more with Monse Alvarado from the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. Welcome back 
to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Gracie Christie, and I am joined in studio by Andrea picciotti Bayer, my colleague at the Catholic Association, and also our other colleague, Ashley McGuire. Welcome back, everyone. And we have also with us in studio, Monse Alvarado. She's the vice president of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, a very important law firm that defends uh, all sorts of cases on, of religious liberty. Uh, all different religions. In fact, right before the break, I was talking to Monse. The first case she was telling me, the first case that she was involved in when she joined Beckett was a case that's close to my heart geographically. Uh, it's, it was a case on Santeria. Santeria is yes. a religious uh, syncretism that's uh, very popular in the Caribbean, especially in Cuba, where I'm from. And in Miami, it's practiced very strongly. We have a lot of Santeria practice. In Miami, we see we see vestiges of it and uh, people dressed, people who are santeros wear all white and, and they worship. There's a ritual when you get a new car to um, put the blood of a pigeon on the That's wheels. Right. You yeah. see that often. There's a lot of animals, animal sacrifice associated with santeria. I mean, you might as well know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, there's, um, so right where, right near where I live, there's the, the, the we call it the La Ermita de la, de la Virgen de la Caridad del Cobre. And that's the uh, shrine to Our Lady of Charity of Cuba. And it's very, very popular with the, with the santeros, with people who practice santeria. They think she's an orisha, which is the, how, with how they name their gods. Um, and anyway, that was the most interesting mm-hmm. thing for me, to take a deep dive into san, santero culture and the Yoruba Afro-American history of that religion. Um, and we do that at Beckett all the time. We end up having cases where you're looking at a religion that isn't necessarily your own, but you're defending their right to exist in America. You're defending their right to be... Um, live out that understanding of religion as personal but not private. And even something as strange to us as a religion that practices animal sacrifice, right? Mm-hmm. And is that, what were you actually defending? What, what? We were defending the ritual of goat sacrifice. Um, so it was, it's, basically it's like a meal that has an animal sacrifice with a prayer over it. It's not something that's loud. It's not something that's crazy. Um, and this had been going on for a very long time in um, Mr. Merced's home. And his neighbors didn't like it. Was this in Miami? It was in Miami, and they were trying (laughs) to kick him out, and he decided that he... He would fight ...would fight the city, Mm -hmm. and he won, because in America, you may not like what people are doing, but if a restaurant is allowed to slaughter animals and prepare them beautifully, and you're doing things according to health code, then you can also do that in your home. And we know that a lot of people like to use um, pigs slaughter pigs and have no. a pig roast in their front yard. No, and pigs are if so loud. you can loud have a pig yeah, if you can have a pig roast, you can also have Virginia a goat slaughter. Too, uh, you, can, you can allow religious expression and religious rituals and traditions. That's wonderful about Beckett. One, one of the things I think I said before the break that I love about Beckett is that it is uh, it defends all religious expression, and and sometimes I think it's it's I know that we get into our little our little uh, little holes, and right like we're Catholics, and so we think about Catholic things. But religious liberty is for everybody, even people without faith, right? Right, because it's truly about what you believe about the human person. And so if I don't believe the same thing you do, but I'm not sitting here trying to convince you about what I believe, I don't really love you. Mm. Because you don't want that person's because good. Because you don't want that person's good, right? Mm-hmm. And I see that in the office all the time. We have colleagues who don't necessarily believe the same thing, and I always hear that from our attorneys. How come you haven't told me about what you believe? Don't you want to see me in paradise or whatever it is that you believe about the next life or not? Um, and 
there's a great case that really shows that, which is um, Pastor Soto's case. It was all over the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, this wonderful tribal leader in his um, feather garbs. And he was being persecuted by the government, by the uh, wildlife secretary. It's crazy. Hmm. And they had covert agents going into his 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 feathers because Because of his his feathers. Really? And in the Lipan Apache tribe's tradition, if you control the feather, you control the person. So the government was effectively controlling all of these people. Yeah, they were trying to control. And they knew this. This wasn't like unknown knowledge about the tribe. And what Um, was what was the government's interest in feathers? The federal repository said that if you're not registered with the government, you're not allowed to own a feather. So if your child, Christy, came upon a feather um, at a on the ground, on the ground, eagle feathers. Exactly. What? Eagle feathers on the ground in a park. That is a federal offense to pick it up and keep it. Really? Even though the eagle might have dropped it? It doesn't matter. It, you didn't it, pluck it out of the and, and even if your great-great-great-great-grandfather passed it down in his will for you. Really? It is not yours. It belongs to go- the government, and you can be fined and jailed, which is exactly what they were trying to do to these people. Yeah. So couldn't they just register, or was it— Well, imagine how hard it is to get your driver's license, you know? I mean, the, all the hoops you have to jump through, I think oh, part of the problem— Don't even talk about getting a kid's driver's license Kids trying to get registered <laughs> as a, you know, a certain And tribe. even so, like, what, what is the government's actual interest in right. making—forcing these people to register? so that they can control them. Um, I mean, we can talk about registered churches internationally and what that Hmm. means, but let's not get into that. (laughs) Um, But again, you're looking at a totally different tradition. They do believe in Jesus Christ, but they have practiced Native American rituals. So, because he's a pastor, Pastor Soto. What does that mean? What does it look like? What do they actually believe? How do we tell their story? Um, And that's what Beckett does. Beckett, Beckett defends that space for people to live in the transcendent. Absolutely. And sometimes it's Pastor Soto and sometimes it's as iconic as the Little Sisters of the Poor walking down the steps of the Supreme Court. That was a spectacular moment in American history for all of us who were watching, which I think was everybody, right? There there wasn't anybody in America that wasn't paying attention to the Little Sisters. How did... Over 50 orders singing Salve Regina outside the Supreme hmm. Court. I don't think I'll ever forget that. Oh, that, that, that was an incredible moment. And, and okay, and I'd like to just mention that they're still being persecuted. How could this they possibly are. be? <laughs> so they won their case at the Supreme Court against the federal government. But the moment that um, the election occurred and you had a Republican in power, um, the state AGs of the opposing party, so Democratic state AGs, decided to sue the government over their exemption. So they're basically saying, government, you're allowing these people to do this, but you are getting in the way. You're meddling with my state-level laws because I don't want to give nuns an exemption. I want to force them to provide these drugs and services that go against their religious beliefs. You have 14 states that are involved in going after the Little Sisters to throw them um, back into court. You know, before we uh, keep talking about that, I want to remind our listeners that we are, you are listening to Conversations with Consequences, and we're talking to Monse Alvarado from the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. So back to the Little Sisters. Yes. You know, I have, I have a question for you, Monse. Um, Pope Francis has spoken often about ideological colonization, mm. right, where we're imposing, especially the West, imposing our ideas on developing countries. And it seems like oftentimes the same thing is happening here in the States. We're, you know, the, a movement to basically banish faith from our thinking is being kind of inflicted on us through these general um, laws and movements that don't allow for exemptions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, is that what people of faith are left with? We're left with getting a, an exemption 
from these kind of authoritarian laws? Or are we trying to strive for something more? Are we, you know, out there kind of in in the mix trying to reconvert our culture? I mean, that's, I, I would hope so. That's why we're holding the line on this space. So when we take religious liberty cases that are defending free speech, one of the big hopes is that that, that public square will be full of this countercultural speech that will bring people back to this understanding of religion and society that is positive. You know, um, talking about free speech and sort of the public square, tell us a little bit about Beckett's work on college campuses. It seems like this fight um, or just there's a lot of tension between associational rights, religious rights, speech rights um, more broadly, but also this is really the nexus is really um, hitting it with, with regards to religious liberty. On campuses, absolutely. So going back to the cultural point of this, a lot of the time we think, oh, the Supreme Court, yeah, they have decisions and they're important, but they don't affect me. Um, This is one where a decision in 2010 called CLS v. Martinez really made a big difference. It basically said that religious groups on campus weren't allowed to choose their leadership. Um, And we know that whoever is at the head of the organization is going to decide how information is disseminated, what information is disseminated, Mm -hmm. what are the priorities. Exactly. And this created a lot of issues for religious groups on campus that were starting to get kicked off um, and whose religious speech was being limited and free speech in general was being violated. Why were they, why were they having a problem? Because they choose who is part, they have requirements for who is a part of their group and who is a leader of their group. Mm -hmm. And those requirements, according to the government or according to state universities, go against their anti-discrimination policies. But we know that discrimination isn't necessarily, it's a terrible thing when we think about the history of our country, but it's not necessarily a bad thing when you think about it in terms of groups. So it's more like selection. Exactly. Like who do you, who are you going to hang out with? Fraternities. And why? What's your purpose in life, right? Exactly. You're you're getting together to play Frisbee, you're not going to get someone... Who's not group, interested in frisbee? Who's or, never touched a frisbee? Exactly. That's or exactly or an right. atheist running the Christian student right, organization, or a, or, a, or a Republican running the Democrats for the Democrat student club, or you know a fundamentalist Christian running the Pride Parade. Like it just doesn't work. You don't mm-hmm. want people who disagree with you leading your groups. And the reality here is that that's it's kind of gone haywire. It's where we've lost our vision of why freedom of assembly is important and why we want people to be able to gather. So what's Beckett's involvement in that? We represent student groups on campus that are getting kicked off. We have a case in in Michigan and we have another case in Iowa Mm -hmm. where these groups in graduate schools and in public universities are being told you don't get to use our space, you don't get to use our resources. Wrote, by you know, now, now that you remind, I wrote an article about that. Yes, that was published yes, in Michigan. You did. <laughs> I just remembered. I'm going to link to it, okay, at you the bottom should. of the podcast. Well, and it's interesting. It's been a long time since I was in law school and a little longer since I was in college. But these associations, these groups really help kind of ground yourself. There's so much pressure and so much stress to try to be exceptional students. And if you have a chance, especially when it deals with faith groups, it gives you a chance to kind of pull away from all of the pressure of studying and trying to excel and kind of refine yourself. And, and it one would of be a biggest, shame shame if kids couldn't have. Absolutely. And one of the biggest issues, which I'm sure you know having kids, you you know that the identity of your child needs some continuity, Right. And if you have a church group at home, if you can find a similar church group on campus, 
Um, one of the groups that we represent is related to Assemblies of God, which is a very large denomination. If you can find a, an Assemblies of God group on campus, you know that the same values are going to be shared mm -hmm. by those people. You can create community. You can well, feel you bring up a very home. important point that young people in college, college students, suffer from loneliness a oh, lot. Oh, yeah, and depression. And depression and anxiety. And those, those bonds, those religious bonds, are very comforting. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. There's another case that's kind of very close to my heart, and it's, it's dealing with um, Philadelphia's Catholic Social Services. And, and here at the Catholic Association, we've been able to submit an amicus brief at the Court of Appeals level in a case that Beckett is really bringing and leading. And I was wondering if you could inform all of our listeners of, of the case and, and its status and its significance, not just in Philadelphia, but across the country. There is a movement around the country that's been going on for many years, probably 15 years now, to get rid of religious adoption and foster care agencies. That's just a fact. Um, and they're being told that they cannot do any kind of work because they're, they want to refer for home studies for people who don't fit into the criteria of who they believe would be a good family. Um, and we know that for Catholic entities, that's not just limited to people who are in same-sex marriages, but people who are not married, people who are single and not living a, a lifestyle that would be good for a child. There are many reasons why you would refer someone to a different agency or decide not to work, for, work with them. So the, the opposition isn't to the individuals, but it's to the nature of the relationships. Exactly. That's right. Exactly so it's right. it's whether or not this you know, extension of the Catholic Church, this ministry, can endorse a relationship as being a good relationship in which a foster child or an adopted child can go. Right. Why target uh, adoption and foster care agencies? That is something that I would love to know because mm. if you think mm. about the foster care crisis in this country mm. you've got 340,000 kids who need homes that's a pretty big number mm. but it's not so big that we can't solve it if we all get all hands on deck and just decide that this is something that we want to do well foster and adoption care is at the nexus of this idea of, of um, these rights no the rights of, of homosexual couples to have families because how does a homosexual family couple get a family? There's only, you know, that's not they can't get one in the regular way. They have to go outside, right? And then so foster and adoption care um, intersects with that in a in a in a way that that it, that side. It definitely needs to. does. But the uh, the argument is that you have to stomp out religious groups that don't want to work with these couples when there are plenty of groups that do want to work with them and who also understand that a religious agency is going to be able to speak to what a good home will be for a child that needs a religious family. Well, and not to mention the great success of religious agencies, right? They're in very recruiting. successful Absolutely. In, in, at what they do. Let me remind everyone that our listeners that were listening to, that you're listening to the Catholic Association and we're talking to Monse Alvarado, the vice president from the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. In thinking about the Philadelphia case and, and just to keep everyone up to speed right now, the case it, it may hopefully be resolved at the Supreme Court level because it wasn't resolved properly, in my opinion, um, to keep Catholic social services operating after almost 100 years, right, Monsi? Yes. Um, but it's interesting that significance goes beyond this very important area of foster care and adoption, in my opinion. It, it deals with partnerships. Um, local governments, state governments need to have strong partners working with them, and often those partners, especially when we're dealing with grave uh, needs and crises are faith-based agencies. And if faith-based agencies have to leave their faith at the, 
at the door in order to cooperate and partner up with the government, we're really going to be in trouble. Absolutely. They're your recruiters, and they're kind of the, the groups that are going to speak to what compels you to serve, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're That's church, why you show up, right? Exactly. That's why you show up at the agency to make yeah, very little money. Absolutely. You have very, very little resources. You have to do a lot. And the only reason that you are doing it is because you have a duty to do so because of what you believe about mm-hmm. who you are and who other people are. Well, and I also think it gets back to your earlier point about the role of government. And there's something similar to me about what's happening here as to what happened with the HHS mandate, where you have this big religious institution or collection of institutions that's sort of competing with the government for providing a service. So the Catholic Church was the largest non-governmental provider of health care services to the poor. If you get them out of the way, then everybody needs the government for their mm-hmm. health care services. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of Cuba, where a soup kitchen is illegal because right. you cannot you, you, have right. private, charitable, mm-hmm. which, by the way, are almost always religious um, entities doing this work. Otherwise, it suggests to people that the, they don't need the government for every single thing in their life. Mm-hmm. That's completely right. And the United States is the number one philanthropic country in the world. Everybody mm-hmm. knows that. Everyone mm-hmm. knows that this is a place that, uh, for whatever reputation you want to give it, it has, it is generous. We practice generosity. And on, the, on an individual basis, too, right? Americans exactly. are very generous uh, compared to other Exactly. People of other countries. And it's the mark of exactly those services that Ashley was noting. I mean, it is it is the mark of who we are as Americans. Our civic associations, which mm-hmm. are so strong. Exactly. In my um, article about Ilhan Omar, I make the point, I think the Philanthropy Roundtable said the single most determining factor as to how charitable someone will be is their faith. Mm. And, you know, we, we forget about that, but... It's true. Uh, my my secular friends have no charitable plan. And I don't know a single person who attends mass or temple or anything regularly that doesn't make a pl- They sit down and make their charity plan for the year. We all do that. You know, I wanted to just go back real quick to our conversation about some of these cases. And, and oftentimes, I think they're being mischaracterized gravely in the press as being um, a desire of people of faith to discriminate and leave in this, in the case of foster care and adoption, same-sex couples without an option, and and I think it's very important that we look at Philadelphia and Michigan. All of these cases aren't about turning away same-sex couples from being able to foster or adopt. It's about not being able to work with them in the agency and provide the supports because it would be at odds with with the mission of. Of the organization, but the point is that those couples have lots of options. They have they love have lots 29 of options in, and, in Philadelphia. Yeah, right? and many and of those couples have, dis- have still in the six years that we've been in this legal battle have not adopted. So, the reality here you is think they weren't really planning to adopt. The ACLU <laughs> is openly targeting these organizations, yeah. trying to shut them down. That is not a um, secret. Everybody knows that. And if we want to work together, there are definitely ways that we can keep religious agencies open and serve same-sex couples. There are more than enough providers. Monse, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations with Consequences. You are delightful to talk to. Thank you for having me.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Sub- subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Today I chose uh, an article from the Washington Times. It says, Texas files suit against San Antonio over Chick-fil-A decision. It was published on Monday, June 3rd. And I, I chose it because in my family we love Chick-fil-A. And I think, well, first of all, we love the taste. We love that special sauce that they put on the uh, on the chicken, amazing stuff. Don't know what it's what's in it. It's sort of like a honey Calories. mustard. Calories. Calories. <laughs> That's what my husband says. Lay off the special sauce. <laughs> so, we love Chick Fil A, um, and this article is about the fact that the Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton accused San Antonio city lawmakers of discriminating against the chicken chain because of the religious rel- beliefs of the owner. So the San Antonio city lawmakers said that. Uh, when they were assigning the concessions at the airport that everybody could apply except Chick-fil-A because they don't, they don't think that the beliefs of Chick-fil-A are compatible with San Antonio city lawmakers' beliefs. What's really incredible about um, their position is they called this nice franchise where all of the people working there are so beautiful and kind and attentive a symbol of hate. Yeah, it's really strange. You know, and these days... Uh, if you walk into Target, everything's a rainbow flag. If you open up your your Nordstrom rack uh, account <laughs> where you get your shoes on sale, <laughs> every you know this month especially this is Gay Pride Month and and all these corporations are very very confident about putting the rainbow flag on everything that they do and they are promoting a certain belief system that is in everybody's and that's very strange that they should take it against Chick Fil A for being an um, honest Christian organization. Well, and I think it's not the, you know, they're not the only corporate entity that has sort of professed a belief. You know, most corporations will talk about some sort of belief that they have, um, some sort of moral set of values that mm-hmm. they espouse. You know, if you shop at Whole Foods, they talk about compassionate capitalism. Um, you know, what's another good example? Well, Hobby Lobby is a good example. Um, so. They're definitely um, picking out who to discriminate against in this case. They're I mean, being at, selected for what they believe. Look in. at what we've seen just recently: Netflix coming out against jo- the state of Georgia, right? And who what was the other company? Like uh, oh, Disney, Disney, Disney. The whole company came out against against entire states. What's really interesting in this case involving Chick Fil A is that it's a government deciding who gets to be in the marketplace. And they're the ones discriminating instead of an individual that decides, you know, I just I don't like the position of this chicken place. So I'm going to go over and get my nuggets from from McDonald's, which are terrible. Um, it's, it's the government that's deciding who gets to be a part of things. And that's really a problem. I was telling I was telling my, my friends here before we started taping that recently over Easter, we went to Chick-fil-A. And they had allowed the employees to decorate the windows with Easter messages. And it was right, it was a couple days after Easter, Sunday. And, of course, Easter in the United States is bunnies and eggs and and the colors of Easter and the the egg hunts and the egg rolls. And there were these beautiful murals 
all religious themed. And it was such a shock because I had I realized that I had been desensitized. I had, yeah, <laughs> I, I had started to think of Easter as an egg holiday. So one of the murals was so pretty. It said, um, silly, bu- silly bunny, Easter is for Jesus. And we just thought that was really charming. So that's Chick-fil-A, being very brave and trying to get into San Antonio Airport and not having much success. But let's hope that the that the uh, Texas Attorney General is able to, to prevail in this case. So now we're going to turn to a different article. This one was published June 4th on Real Clear Politics, and it's from our own Ashley McGuire from the Catholic Association, and she's here joining us in studio. Hi, Ashley. Hey, it's so great to be here with you. Okay, I, co- I hope I get the, the, the words right, the pronunciation. So your article is called Omar Errs in Her Views on Women and Religious Views. And it's about Ilhan Omar, who's a freshman congresswoman from Minnesota. And there's lots to talk about with her. Yeah, she's a very controversial figure. Uh, this isn't the first time she's uh, offended people. Um, but this time it happened to be uh, sort of my affiliation. She mm-hmm. went to the floor and targeted religious pro-lifers um, and called them fundamentalists and accused them of uh, – basically trying to do everything, I think she said, criminalizing women for simply existing. And she was reacting to uh, the slew of pro-life bills that have been passing in the states. Um, But her remarks were really offensive, and I felt the need to write about it because they were actually, I think, sort of textbook bigotry. Um, Mm -hmm. The way she tried to sort of marginalize Christians, um, gin up fear about their influence, um, and sort of exaggerate what's going on. Um, and she's done this before. She's been accused multiple times of making anti-Semitic remarks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I don't forget that. And it just it, nothing nothing bothers me more than when um, women pretend or or suggest that they're speaking for all women oh. when they talk about abortion. That's which, one of the worst things that we hear from the the pro-choice side, isn't it? The way that they say, well, we women, we believe this and we think that. And we're right. like, we're waving our hands. Oh, in your article, you put all these great statistics in there about the way that women break down uh, statistically. Basically no? identical to men. Mm-hmm. We have the same views as men. And it's just, it's getting so tired um, to be basically boxed into this category. Um, so... You know, I felt the need to point out that, A, she doesn't speak for women uh, when it comes to their views on abortion and what's going on with these state bills, uh, and B, that her her remarks about Christians um, are offensive, and it's just not appropriate for a member of Congress to be shaming people for their religious views. Well, and Ashley, the one thing that I thought was most jarring about these remarks is they happen on the floor of the House. Um, she was taking valuable time out from our national conversation on how to bring us together to divide us more over things that were, you know, false and inflammatory. And but I, I, think you it was know, great I feel going back to the I feel like she's taking a cue from these corporations like Netflix and Disney, you know, being very confident that they can call out the, the state a full, full of people, full of voters who presumably knew what they were doing when they went and they voted for these representatives that then took these heartbeat laws you know, all the way to signature by right. the by the governor. Well, she 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 reminded me more of some of these Hollywood starlets mm. and their hyperbolic remarks. Mm. But she's not a Hollywood starlet. No, she's, she's a member a of Congress who's vowed to uphold the U.S. Constitution, which protects religious liberty and 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 and, and protects us people mm-hmm. like us. You know, women who have views that are different from hers. Mm-hmm. And she has yeah one well wonderful article Ashley. Thank you. 
Um, so you can find the links to these articles on the podcast show notes. And to subscribe to the podcast and the media clips, please go to thecatholicassociation.org. Next, this week, as is customary, Father Roger Landry gives us a short but brilliant homily on this coming Sunday's Gospel. Please stay tuned for Father Landry, and do look up his, his daily homily, written and audio, on his website, www.catholicpreaching.com. This Sunday in the Gospel, Jesus says a consequential conversation with us all when he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to be with you always. Then he describes who that advocate is, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, who will teach you everything and remind you of all that I told you. Jesus was saying those words during the Last Supper, and we know what would happen after he'd washed their feet and instructed them about true service, after he'd given them his body and blood for the first time, after he ordained them priests so that through them he could give us his same body and blood, after he had prayed for them to the Father that they might be one, that the Father would protect them from the evil one, that they might be consecrated in the truth, and that those who would hear the gospel through their lips might be one too. They left the room, and they all went out and abandoned the Lord right after Mass, right after receiving the Lord within, right after their priestly ordination. All but St. John were still hiding the next day, as love personified was tortured and killed upon a cross. Jesus had prepared them for three years about what would happen to him and what they were called to do. But none of that preparation, none of Jesus' prayers, not even the sacrament of the Eucharist, sufficed to keep them faithful. Something was missing. Today we see the apostles return to the same upper room on Pentecost. Jesus had ascended to heaven, so the apostles huddled around his mother for ten days in order to learn from her about Jesus, to learn from her how to pray, to learn from her how to say yes to God, to learn ultimately how to cooperate with the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. And they left the upper room and began to preach the gospel fearlessly. 3,000 were converted that first day. The same apostles who had scattered like frightened children in the garden were now gathering God's children together for Christ. The same Peter who denied even knowing Jesus in order to keep himself warm by the courtyard fire was now on fire, confessing that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. The disciples were too ashamed to appear at the foot of the cross, now boldly and proudly proclaimed God's love seen by Christ's death on that cross. What was different? Surely Mary's example had helped. Doubtless the resurrection of Jesus from the dead had filled them with joy and given them profound confidence. But what could have made these men turn from chickens to shepherds, from cowards to courageous martyrs, from apostates to apostles so soon? The answer is who and what we celebrate today, the Holy Spirit. On Pentecost Sunday, the Holy Spirit worked a miracle in each of the apostles and through them in the whole church. He came down upon them as tongues of fire, tongues to speak, fire because they were to speak with the passion of burning love. And they responded. As Jesus had promised, the Holy Spirit would teach them all things, lead them all to all truth, remind them of everything he had taught, and prove the world wrong about sin, righteousness, and condemnation. They helped by the Holy Spirit, began to fulfill this mission. The Acts of the Apostles had begun, the church was born, and that same Holy Spirit who came down upon them wants to come down upon us, so that every conversation we have will be a consequential one, 
radiating Christ's wisdom and helping them to come to him who, for us, sent us that spirit. Happy Pentecost. Thank you, Father Landry, for preparing us for this Sunday's homily. To our listeners, a reminder, you can see his daily homily, both written and audio, at www.catholicpreaching.com. So what a great conversation we just had with Monse Alvarado from the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty here at the Catholic Association. We can talk about religious liberty all day, right? Gracie, the one problem that I think in this podcast is that we aren't um, attaching a video because uh, just being in studio with Monse and with with Ashley and you, it reminds me, you guys are all beautiful. Oh, (laughs) it's really, really beautiful. But also, I mean, the message is beautiful, right? It isn't a divisive message. It isn't a a message of otherizing. It isn't a a message filled with hate. It's, It's definitely a message filled with love, with incredible respect for each person's desire to get closer to God and to not have any limitations in that pursuit. And also what's best for our country. Our country is is meant to be pluralistic, to allow lots of different kinds of people with lots of different ideas to live together in peace. That's what the peace that we we experience in our country comes from respect for other people's opinions. And that's why I I thought, you know, I'm always trying to understand what happened. You know, again, that it was a bipartisan issue. This was something, this was a rallying point Mm -hmm. for the longest time. And I think, you know, our sort of project is to restore that. And I think it's all's not lost, but uh, we have a lot of work to do. Well, we, I think we've allowed the, the certain parts of our society to use religious liberty, again, as a, as, as a club to, <laughs> to beat other, other people over the head with. It's a, it's a great shame. Or, or to question it. Again, I go back to I routinely see I, I saw conscience rights in quotation marks the other day. That's scary. Hmm. It's very scary when people are talking about conscience rights as if it were a fake concept. Well, I know it's and it's also a very small-minded thing. I mean, right now, if you're putting conscience rights in scare quotes, you you're basically you're assuming that people, you know, the cultural, the current cultural moment or the current cultural moment, whatever that is, it's going to exist forever. So you'll always be on the right side of conscience rights, right? But who's there's no there's no guarantee that things won't change. Well, I think that we're really in a, a chance to continue to bring the message of what is good and true and beautiful, and that is going to win the day. It may may take a while to reverse some of the, the backsliding that we've done, but we're getting closer every day. You've been listening to Conversations with Consequences from the Catholic Association. You can look us up at www.thecatholicassociation.org. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and we shall be talking to you.